somebody is on the ball, they've already changed my calendar, pulled the old sheet off, and have number one circled about eight times. <laughs> I have no excuse for not getting it right. Okay, today is March. <laughs> May the 1st, 2012. Okay, let's see. I don't know if I, I don't think I have any announcements, anything pressing. So let's get into our mode in our usual way. A few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you are our God and that you are immutable. You change not. And we can always depend upon your word. We thank you that we're not left to our own devices and that your word is alive and powerful. We are here to inculcate that word into our long-term memory that it will change who we are, how we think, and what we do. So we pray that you will help us to focus, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Any time that you make an absolute statement, especially when you back it up with the Word of God, most of the time, or at least a lot of the time, people are going to challenge you on the Word of God. Not necessarily what you know, but challenge the Word of God itself. And that's why we're on this critical area of getting the gospel right and we're talking really about apologetics and how to defend the Bible, how to at least make a case and give evidence about the Bible being the infallible Word of God. Because if you, and I hope, by the way, that uh, the question should be, if you are out there being active spiritually, you are going to be challenged. If you are making dogmatic statements about the Word of God, which I hope you are, then you're going to be challenged. And the mistake that most believers make is getting into their argumentative mode. They want to tell everybody and straighten them out how they're wrong. And we have to eliminate that from our repertoire of dealing with people concerning the Word. What we want to do is ask them questions, and give them some evidence. And one of the main things that we don't do is argue about the evidence. The reason we're giving them evidence is to demonstrate why we believe the Word of God is infallible and His revelation to mankind. Whether they accept it or not is up to them. But when you give them some evidence, when you tell them why you believe it and not excoriate them because they don't, they're a lot more apt to reason in their own mind. Listen to the evidence and see. So, we just finished textual criticism, at least dabbled in it a little bit. And remember the figure 6,000? Does that stand out in your mind? What does 6,000 have to do with? The number of manuscripts that the Bible has. The closest one to it is... The Iliad has about 600. That's the next closest, which is 10 times less. The next closest to it is about 100, and then there's about 8 or 12 manuscripts for most of the 
documents of antiquity. So we have far and above more manuscripts to back up the Word of God. Plus, it was already uh, made, the copies were made within 25 years of the original text. And everything that you look at with regards to the Bible is very heavy on evidence. So we're looking tonight, we're going to start here at uh, evidence. The Bible is the infallible Word of God. There's several areas that we'll go into. We won't get to all of them tonight, but we're going to start with structural evidence. The way the Bible itself is structured. This is a quote from Larkin's Dispensational Truth. God's plan and purpose of the ages. Clarence Larkin. If you don't have his book on dispensationalism and the, all the graphs, you're really missing out. But this is from his uh, book. He says, The scriptures were given to us piecemeal at sundry times and in divers manners. That means different ways. So we didn't get the scriptures all at one time. A little came here, a little came later. Of course, the Old Testament scriptures came first, then later the New Testament, and in different ways. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit during a period of 1,600 years, extending from B.C. 1492. Y'all can remember that date, can't you? Boy, did my elementary teacher ever put one on me when she had that little rhyme. Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Or it might be the other way around. Anyway, 1492, nearly 15 centuries uh, before Christ, to the birth of Christ, to A.D. Anno Domini, 100, 100 years after uh, Christ's birth. So that's close to, what, 1,600 years. The Bible consists of 66 separate books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. These books were written by about 40 different authors. By kings such as David and Solomon. By statesmen as Daniel and Nehemiah. By priests as Ezra. By men learned in wisdom of Egypt as Moses. By men learned in Jewish law as Paul. By herdsmen, Amos a tax gatherer, Matthew, fishermen as Peter, James, and John, who were unlearned and ignorant men, a physician, Luke, and such mighty seers as Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. Now you could hardly get a more diverse group of men that God chose to write His Word. Imagine another book compiled in a similar manner. Suppose, for illustration, that we take 66 medical books written by 40 different physicians and surgeons during a period of 1,600 years of various schools of medicine as uh, allopathy, homeopathy, hydropathy, osteopathy. <coughs> you all know what those are? I could, I could really show off now because I looked all these up and I know what they are. <laughs> I even know how they came from the... All these came from Greek words, by the way. Allopathy is the opposite of homeopathy. 
you can see homo in Greek means same and pathy means evidence or suffering. So if you're into homo, uh, homeopathy, what they do is take a, a little bit of a very small amount of something, some substance that has to do with your symptoms, why you, your body has whatever ailments it may be. And you ingest that and it builds up antibodies in your body to fight that. That's what homeopathy is. It's the same, the, the thing that they uh, give you is the s same symptoms. It's going to produce the same symptoms. Now, allopathy is similar to that. You ingest something, but not, it's not the same symptoms that the, what you ingest. It's something different. And you have allopathy. Uh, allos in Greek means other or different. And then pathy means suffering or evidence. So, um, and then, of course, hydro, uh, hydropathy has to do with uh, water, uh, healing with water. And then um, osteo, uh, ost, ost, what is it? Osteopathy, Osteopathy has to do with uh, bones and muscles. When you go to a chiropractor, he is into, uh, uh, what is it? Ost, uh, osteopathy. And he, he uh, gets your bones in straight and all these type of things. So anyway, let's say that you had 40 different physicians and, uh, who wrote 66 different medical books over a period of 1,600 years from various schools of medicine. And these are the categories that they are going to write about, the type of uh, medicine. And bind them all together and then undertake, or what this really means, uh, uh, direct a doctor to treat a man according to that book. What success would we expect to have and what accord would there be in such a medical work? Can you imagine? Um, you, you couldn't even get past one page. I mean, it, it would be a colossal flop, wouldn't it? I mean, you would, if anybody tried to use such a book to heal someone, it would probably go in the garbage in the first five minutes because everything would be contradictory. Even at the, in the uh, late 1800s, maybe even later than that, they were still cutting someone and bleeding them, getting the bad, bad blood out, and they thought this was a, a remedy. And there's a lot worse than that. Anyhow, suffice it to say that the fact that this book that you have on your lap is a miracle book, essentially. Only God could compile 66 books from 40-some-odd authors over 1,600 period uh, years of time and all these diverse authors, and most of them didn't know each other, of course, over that period of time and so forth, and have it come out coherent, coherent without any errors and be fluid. It reads, actually, there are two some people say there's two books, but actually the Old Testament and the New Testament is really two halves of the same book. They, they really accompany or are, 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 are compatible with each other. While the Bible has been compiled in the manner described, it is not a heterogeneous jumble of ancient history, myths, legends, religious speculations, and superstitions, which it has all been accused of, by the way. There is a progress of revelation and doctrine in it. The judges knew more than the patriarchs. You know who the patriarchs were. Then you had the judges knew more than the patriarchs. 
And the prophets knew more than the judges, and the apostles knew, apostles knew more than the prophets. The Old and New Testaments are not separate and distinct books. The New taking the place of the Old. They are two halves of a whole. You cannot understand Leviticus without Hebrews or Daniel without Revelation or the Passover or Isaiah 53 without the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In other words, they complement one another. I remember I taught Daniel I, it was several years ago. I know some of you were here when I did. And I started in verse 1 and I went verse by verse all the way through the whole book of Daniel. And before I got probably by even chapter 2 nearly, I was already going to Revelation to help explain uh, Daniel. It's amazing how they fit like a hand in a glove. They explain each other. And that's what it's talking about. They're not two separate distinct books. They're two halves of the same, same book that are inter integral. Some say that the Bible is inscrutable and no one can truly understand it. I don't know if you've ever run into someone like that. Surely there are those out there who make that claim. They, you see, this is an excuse. They don't read the Bible. They're not, they wouldn't classify themselves as a religious person because they have the excuse that no one can really know the Bible or about God because it's all inscrutable. And there's no way that anyone can know, so why bother? That's the bomb that they put on their sore conscience because they have ignored God. Well, here's a quote from, uh, again, from Larkin's Dispensational Truth. He says, While the Bible is a revelation from God, it is not written in a superhuman or celestial language. If it were, we could not understand it. Its supernatural origin, however, is seen in the fact that it can be translated into any language and not lose its virility or spiritual life-giving power. Isn't that amazing? Any, any language it goes into, it doesn't matter what it is, and there are thousands of languages. There may be, there are probably tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of languages, I don't know. But it doesn't matter what language it is translated into, it is still alive and powerful. We do most of our reading in, in the English. And it's isn't it alive and powerful in the English? It's that way in German and French, Italian, Spanish, you name it. It still has its power. And it's got a supernatural origin. In fact, the Bible was written in the language of the common man called the Koine Greek. It wasn't a high philosophical Attic Greek. It was just common Greek, the kind of language that the man on the street would understand. And we can understand that because if you go to a conference and you have a group of maybe medical doctors there or maybe scientists, when they want to find out some more information, they say it. I'm going to confer with my colleagues. We understand what that means. But if you go to, let's say, a country music festival and they want to get some more information, ask somebody something, say, I'm going to ask my friends or I'm going to ask my buddies 
I mean, it's, it's essentially the same thing, but one is more common language, the other is more sophisticated. And the Bible was in the common language because no doubt God wanted to keep it simple. And there are things that he cannot keep simple. There are scriptures, there's passages, there's areas of the Bible that the most renowned theologian doesn't have a clue. We have to take it by faith. You know, no scripture was written until Moses. And Moses came along, when was it, about uh, 1500 B.C., something like that. And so all the, the Torah, Matthew, I mean, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were all uh, written by Moses. How did he know all that? Well, because it was inspired. It was given to him by God, and we'll get to that in a bit. Some say believers do not have the absolute objectivity of a kind or a kind of omniscience that cannot adequately understand the Bible. In other words, they say we don't have the, um, the moxie. We don't have the education. We don't have the intelligence to truly understand the Bible. However, Jesus corrected or rebuked those who misunderstood or misinterpreted scriptural teaching and <clears throat> I think this is in Acts 5, 17 through 48. It's a quote. As did Paul and Peter. And in other words, they would rebuke those who misunderstood or misinterpreted Scripture in Acts 15, Acts 18, 25, 2 Peter 3, 16. When Jesus rebuked the Sadducees' interpretation of the Old Testament, he said, you are mistaken. You do not understand the Scriptures. This is in Mark chapter 12, verse 24. Hence, the scriptures, scriptures are knowable and can be properly interpreted. Otherwise, Jesus would not have rebuked the Sadducees. He would have been unjust to rebuke someone for not correctly interpreting and understanding Scripture if it's inscrutable. And, of course, that's a blasphemous idea to even think that Jesus would do anything that would be unjust. So this is a good retort to someone who says that no one can really understand the Scriptures. The Scriptures themselves, internal evidence demonstrates that we can understand the whole realm of God. It's not intelligence anyway. How many times have you heard me say when I talk about the grace system of perception? It's not your education. It's not your intelligence, your IQ. It's your volition that makes the difference. And you can go as far as your volition and the Holy Spirit can take you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, For we know, by the way, that word know is the Greek word oida, perfect active indicative. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is referring to our body, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, according to this verse, it says we can know this. We can, well, we all, every person that has a, a normal amount of intelligence knows that this body doesn't last forever. Eventually, it's going to die, it's going to decay, and so forth. That's the earthly tent, and we know that. 
But we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. What is that talking about? Our resurrection body. Talking about our resurrection eternal in the heavens. Now, we can't just speculate on that. We can know it. Perfect tense, indicative mood. Not only can we know it, but in the perfect tense, it means that we've known it in the past, and the result of that knowledge of knowing that goes right on into the present. So knowing that you have a resurrection body, looking forward to it, to Christ's return, and receiving that, counting on His promise makes a big difference. So this is just one of many areas in the Bible that says we can know this. And that's very important in the postmodern age in which we live because postmodernism is characterized by what? No absolutes, right. Everything is just kind of an ethereal thing. You can't know anything for certain. However, they do say there is one thing only that you can know for absolute certainty. And that is that you can't know anything with certainty. Now try that one on for some. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, see, it says, uh, when he's talking about earthly tent, which our house is torn down, he's talking about death there. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Um, I think it really refers to both. Because if you go into Second Corinthians chapter 5, the first uh, five or six verses deal with what we would call the interim body. And there's evidence. There's some people that say, no, you don't have any any interim body at all, that when you die you just are a spirit and you don't get a body until the rapture. There are some who claim that. But there's evidence that shows otherwise, being face-to-face with God. And when you read Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, the first five or six verses, you'll see that uh, a house is, is a, you know, a structure, a substantial thing. And so <clears throat> this could be, the way I see this, it could be both the interim body, and the uh, resurrection body. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through about, I don't know, verse 6, something like that, those verses all deal with the interim body. Yeah, with, the, with this being, it, it talks about we long uh, to be clothed uh, with a house and so forth, so. But the point that I'm making here mainly, though, is that we can know this. This is a spiritual discernment that we don't speculate. We know this. And for those who say we, we can't know these things, they're in direct contradiction of what the Word of God says, says we can know these things. This is one of many passages that show we can know and understand Bible doctrine. We know... That term is used 17 times in the King James Version of 1 John alone. 17 times if you have a King James Version. 1 John, in that epistle, he says, we know. We know, we know, we know. And if you don't know, you can't blame God and shame on you. And you're in for, a, used to, they used to say, a long, a long road to hoe. What that means is, Life isn't going to be all that sweet for you. I'm not talking about circumstances. I'm talking about being in the dark. 
Okay, all that was under the heading of structural, structural evidence. Okay, now we're going to move on to internal evidence. The other was just the way the Bible is structured. Now, internal evidence. Is the Bible God's book or man's book? That is the question for a lot of people. In other words, when it says man's book, it means is this just something man came up with or is this indeed God's revelation of himself to man? So I quote, let's see where this is coming from, Clarence Larkin again. Okay. So with that, with that in mind, is the Bible God's book or man's book? That is, did God write it or is it simply a collection of the writings of men? If it is simply a collection of the writings of men without any divine guidance, then it is no more reliable than are the writings of men. But if God wrote it, then it must be true and we can depend on its statements. It is clear from the character of the Bible that it is not the work of man, for man could not have written it if he would and would not have written it if he could. Now think about that for a moment. If Man would not have written it even if he would. In other words, even if he wanted to write it, he couldn't. Why? Because there are so many things that are revelations that only God can give us. How did Moses knew, know what happened How the, starting in Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How would man know that? How would he know about the flood? How would he know about in uh, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 when it's talking about Satan's falls? How would he know about detailed information about when Satan fell? Because that was even before, uh, before Adam and Eve and so forth. How would he know that? So man, if man was going to, to write it, he couldn't because he doesn't, he's not omniscient. He doesn't know so many of the things. But then it says, and even if he could, if he did have the ability to write it, he wouldn't. And you know why? Watch what's coming. It details with scathing and unsparing severity the sins of its greatest men, as Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, and Solomon, charging them with falsehood, treachery, pride, adultery, cowardice, murder, and gross licentiousness, and presents the history of the children of Israel as a humiliating record of ingratitude, idolatry, unbelief, and rebellion. And it's safe to say that the Jews unguided and undirected by the Holy Spirit, would never have chronicled the sinful history of their nation. No people would ever do that. They would embellish. They would... Well, embellish is a kind word. It's a euphemistic term. They would outright lie to save the integrity of their nation and, and of the people and of their heroes. Don't, don't underestimate this part of proof that the Bible was written by God. Because God is impartial. And even the best of the greatest characters in the Bible are fallible. And, and a nation that God had to destroy and, and, and they were uh, taken over more than once and finally completely eliminated and yet God still is going to bring them back. They would never come up with that if it was written by the Jews. 
Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The, the word there is theonoustos. T-H-E-O-P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S. And it means God breathed. That's what the word for inspiration of God is one word in the Greek, and it's actually literally God breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. Do you understand the difference between reproof and correction? Reproof is when someone's straightening you out. Correction is when you do something about it. And of course, doctrine is what God would have us think and do. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. How would we know what righteousness is and how to be righteous if God's Word didn't spell it out for us? Oh yes, we have a conscience, but that conscience can only go so far. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Apart from His Word... We would not be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We would be into gratifying ourselves, because that's our nature. That's what we do. And apart from the Holy Spirit, none of us would ever be interested in doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, and good works, unless we were had an ulterior motive for the good works. All right, we're going to look at this a little bit. Closer, God breathed. And we're actually what we're talking about is inspiration here. That is, God Himself, or through the Holy Spirit, told holy men of old just what to write. The Bible then is the Word of God and does not simply here and there contain it. God is a person with a capital P and can both write and speak. Have you ever thought of that before? He didn't have to use, he, he did use man, but not all the time. He's a person, even though he's a spirit, he's a person, and he can write and speak. He wrote the two tablets of the testimony on, sto on stone. That's talking about the Ten Commandments. Y'all all probably saw the movie with Charlton Heston, Moses, Ten Commandments. I thought, I, I just love that movie. They came up when you remember the fire coming out of heaven and it would hit the side of the mountain and it would just burn. And then all of a sudden it cooled off a little bit and you could see the letters and it was still smoking. Man, that was cool. It was really hot, but it was cool. I really liked that. And I couldn't wait. I've seen it a dozen times at least. And whatever I'm doing, I stop whenever the, the, the Red Sea parts and all that. Anyway. That's one illustration, Exodus 31, 18, 32, 16. And on the wall of Belshazzar's palace in Daniel 5, 5, and verse 24 through 28. Many, many tickle you farson. Does that ring a bell with you? That's what the, the hand on the wall wrote. You are weighed in the balance and found lacking. Can you imagine this king that was so arrogant and pompous? And he was having this big ball. And he, was, he had been warned, oh, nothing's going to happen. And he was, he was so full of himself until he saw just a hand writing on the wall. What would you do? Huh? Freak out? Huh? I believe I, he was probably so drunk. And I bet he was stone sober just like that. I bet he forgot about all the other things. Well, what was that? That was God writing. 
So we're talking about God writing. And he talks. He talked with Moses on Mount Sinai when he gave him the specifications for the uh, temple, for the tab- tabernacle and its uh, furnishings. That's not Mount Sinai. It just says on the mountain. Gave him specifications for the tabernacle and its furnishings and all the Levitical law and order of service. In other words, how would Moses know any of these things? God directly spoke to Moses. Remember when we started Joshua? When Moses died and Joshua took over? One of the differences that God started using um, a prophets and priests and so forth, that he would give the word through an intermediary source um, and he didn't talk directly to uh, Joshua, except there was one exception. Y'all remember that? Come on, make me proud. No. Right. When he Remember when they crossed the Jordan and they, at that point, uh, they decided, okay, this is the time to circumcise everybody. <laughs> Remember that? I mean, here you're most vulnerable time. And you cross the river and there's, you've got to water your back. It's already closed back. No more dry ground. It's to your back. You've got all the enemy before you. And God says, okay, it's time to circumcise all the warriors now. They're going to be out of commission for a while. <laughs> God, do you know what you're doing? Anyway, it was right after that that... The, Joshua didn't know exactly what to do, and he was walking over towards the city of Jericho, and he came face to face with this superior rank. Remember that? That's Lord Jesus Christ speaking to him directly then. Well, anyway, just trying to make you all think. He also uh, spoke at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3.17 and on the Mount of Transfiguration. God speaks and God writes. That Mount uh, of uh, Mount Transfiguration is Matthew seventeen five. And one day, when Jesus was walking, uh, talking to the multitude in John twelve twenty seven through thirty, uh, he said something, and then God spoke to where the the, the audience, the, the the people, could hear. And, and Christ corrected, you know, made sure he said, God didn't speak that so I would know it. I already know it. He spoke it on your behalf so you would hear it. And there's also a place that in this part that he's talking about God speaking that he didn't even mention. And this is when he was speaking to the people on the mountain. They were complaining to Moses, well, why doesn't God just speak directly to us? Remember that? And so he says, okay, I'll talk to the guy. I'll talk to the big cheese there. And so God spoke to him and it scared him so bad. Please, Moses, don't let him speak to us anymore. I don't know what it must have sounded like, but I bet you can't reduplicate it in movies or with our sound or anything. Because you had about two million people that freaked out when they heard God speaking to him. So... <coughs> He spoke spoke to the uh, person directly, but God not only spoke directly to men, he spoke to them in the person of Jesus, for Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, John 1, 1 through 5 and 14, 1 Timothy 3, 16, 
Matthew and John's Gospels contain 49 chapters, 1,950 verses, 1,140 of which almost three-fifths were spoken by Jesus. And he claimed what he spake. He spake not of himself, but what the Father which sent him gave him commandment what he should speak. John 12:49 and 50. We see then that God can both speak, he can both write and speak, and therefore can tell others what to write and speak. I think these things need to be brought out to people who say, well, God used these old men and they just kind of had ideas of what they thought was right. God can speak and he can write. The Bible demonstrates that. And if he can do that, he can certainly ordain or authorize men to speak and write what he wants them to say. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And this interpretation, according to R.B. Theme Jr., should be origin. In other words, they don't, they don't conjure up the prophecy themselves. Indeed, they are unable to. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but God moved, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So it's the Holy Spirit moving. God used the Holy Spirit to move these authors to communicate His complete, coherent, and inerrant word to mankind. Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the prophets made the same claim. The expression, the Lord said, the Lord spake, saying, thus saith the Lord, etc., occurs 560 times in the Pentateuch. You know what the Pentateuch is, right? Okay, first five books of the Bible. 560 times in just the first five books of the Bible, the prophets are saying, Thus saith the Lord. 300 times in the historical and prophetical books, 1,200 times in the prophets, 24 times in Malachi alone, and all over 2,000 times in the Old Testament, thus proving that the statement of Peter that the holy men, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. The Bible uses God in the first person. What other book does that? Huh? Do you know of any? I've never heard of any book that would have the audacity to claim that God is speaking and even use the first person. I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'll get to that in a minute. But you say, if this is true, how do you account for the difference of style of the writers? For Isaiah's style is different from Ezekiel or Daniel's and Peter's from that of Paul, uh, John or Paul. This is easily explained on the principle that when we wish a legal document written, we choose a lawyer or a poetical article, a poet, etc. So God, when he wanted to speak in symbols, chose an Ezekiel, a Daniel, a John, or in poetry, a David. In other words, there are different parts of the Bible. Some, some are, are, are legal. Some of it's historical. Some of it's poetry. 
And so you have these different types of literature and different people that use their own style, their own vocabulary. They used everything. The Holy Spirit just directed it. Isaiah, like the other major prophets, doesn't deliver God's message in the third person as a reporter. Isaiah won't say, for example, God is sick of your offerings. Instead, he speaks the very words of God. I am sick of your offerings. You see what I'm talking about? First person. He's not just reporting. Isaiah, however, will introduce most prophecies with the phrase, The Lord has said. This alerts the people that the words they are about to hear come directly from God. And this comes from how to uh, get into the Bible by uh, Miller and Gross. What other book has God speaking in the first person? Both Jesus and the writers of the New Testament spoke in terms of absolute authoritative certainty. Peter referred to Paul's epistles as Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. Now, this is just another item that I'm giving you in a list of things that you can use in order to substantiate in your mind or explain to others why the Bible is the Word of God. And you might think, what is this? why is that important? I doubt that most of you even wrote 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16 down. But you never know when you're going to need it. It wasn't that long ago, I have a friend up in Arkansas that has a Bible class. Someone in the Bible class said that um, he didn't think that the New Testament was even Scripture. Only the Old Testament was Scripture. And the New Testament was just essentially... He says maybe the Gospels are considered Scripture, but all the epistles and all aren't to be considered Scripture. No, this is somebody that was in a Bible class that was challenging the Bible teacher. And so how do you refute that? I mean, you can, you can say all of your opinions, but the person wasn't interested in opinions, and rightly so. So where would you go in the Bible to prove that it is Scripture? Well, one place is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. This is when Peter is saying, he mentions Paul and says, some of the things that Paul says is hard to understand, as are the rest of Scripture. And there you have it. Right in that one verse, it qualifies an epistle Essentially, all the epistles are considered Scripture. They were considered Scripture by Paul. That's why these notes are good to have. I don't expect you to remember 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16 necessarily. But if you have a problem and someone comes at you with something like this, go to your getting the gospel right scriptures, I mean uh, notes, or go online and get them and search it. By the way, you all all know how to search things like that, don't you? I'm talking about I'm not talking about somebody that doesn't have a computer. <laughs> they just have to spend the time looking, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but they're not always going to be there. Um when you when you just like if I'm in a document 
this is, you might already know this. Let's see where this is here. You can go to edit. It's not here. Usually there's binoculars. Uh, this is my church computer that I don't have everything on. You know, binoculars like that, it's a little icon of binoculars. It's not showing up here. I guess I can show you here. If you go to edit, see these little binoculars right there? See that right there? See that? Y'all see that? You can click on that, and it's saying right here, what do you want to find? You want to find something. I can put any word in there I want, and... It will, uh, well, I'll just do one. Uh, how about, um, I've got to get my glasses on, though. I thought y'all knew how to do this. <laughs> Listen, this is, this is, saves you uh, a lot of time. It is, it, it is, if you have a computer and everything is digitized and you don't know how to use this, well, you're just missing out. Let's put in here, um, Resurrection. Okay? Actually, this will do more than, more than that. If I want to find something, I, I, it's already defaulted to that, and I'm going to type it here. If I, where it says go to, this is about 82 pages already. If I want to go to page 77, I click there and put, hit 77 and click go, and it takes me right to that page. Yes? Anytime you're in your computer and you're on a word processor, which most of you have Microsoft Word, yeah, you click edit, this comes up, and I'll show you how to do this, see? Oh, well, this is, this is the best thing since sliced bread, let me tell you. It's, and it, what? Yes, this is only in the document that you're in. All right, do you know how to get... I guess I got to taste a little computer stuff here. Garth, you can just tune out for a little while. Uh, <laughs> if I want to go all the way back to the very beginning of this document, how would I do it? Huh? Faster than that. Huh? You hit control. If you just hit home, it'll take you to the edge of the sentence. Well, let me get out of this first. See, I don't want to just search. If I do a search when I'm right here, it'll just take me from here to the end of the document. I want to search the whole document. So I want to go to the very beginning. You know, here, write it down if you don't know how to do this. Hit control and hold it, and then hit home. And it'll take you right to the top. That's the end of this document. You, you hear what I'm saying? If you're in a document and you want to go to the very first page, Control is on the far left-hand side, that button. You hit Control and hit Home, and it will take you to the beginning of that document. Yes? No, it's, it, there's a Home on your keyboard that says Home. You hold the Control key down on your far left-hand corner, and you hit the key that says Home, and it takes you to the beginning of your document. Okay? All right, now, this is just where this one started because I'm in the middle of getting the gospel right. Now listen, this is worth the time I'm t telling you to get this because if I wanted to find 1 Peter, well, you wouldn't know 1 Peter. Okay, uh, we're talking, what, was this, what were we talking about then? Um, oh, yeah, Scripture. 
If I didn't know what it was, Scripture's going to be in here a lot, a lot of times. So what do I do? I go up here to edit. You see that? And I go down there to find. Now, you can also, I'm not going to take the time, I could take this and put it up in my ribbon, uh, that toolbar up there, where it's always there. You don't have to go to edit anymore. In fact, I'll do it, see if it'll do it. If I take this, just take it and put it right up in here, is it going to do it? No, that just does it on Libronics. Well, we'll just do this right now. Fine. Okay, let's put Scripture. Scripture. See it right here? Now, all I do is go down here and say, Find Next. See where I went to Scripture there? All right, now, I'm going to get rid of this box because it's in the way. Okay? It's not, that's just the first Scripture. Now, you see these two little blue arrows right here? You'll have them there. One is pointing up and one is pointing down. I, I want to... See, this shows me where I am on my document. I want a scripture. I mean, I want it going down like this, see? So, right. That's the first scripture. Right. Uh -huh. Now, I want to find where the other ones are. So if I take over here this blue arrow looking down and I hit it, every time I hit it, it's going to take me where the scripture is, see? See that? See how you search through there? See that? There it is right there. Yes, it works on Apple as well. Only instead of control, it would be command. You see where we are right here? Huh? Yeah, well, I'll get over here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm, I'm just trying to give the quick overview right now. I don't want to show. I don't want to take the time right now to show them how to get on your toolbar. But the reason I'm showing you this is because let's say someone said, "Well, I don't think that all of the that the New Testament outside the uh, Gospels are truly Scripture. That wasn't author, you know, wasn't authorized by God or whatever." And you said, "Okay, I'm going to go to my notes on getting the Gospel right, and I don't know where it is. I don't remember the Scripture, but I know it had the word Scripture in it." So you go to edit, you go to uh, the binoculars, click on it, and in there you pick Scripture and hit Find, and you just go down Scripture till you find it. You see how you find things like that? In any document you can do that. Or if you want to find a particular Scripture, if I wanted to find 2 Peter 3.14, I could have clicked that in there and it would have taken me right straight to it. But I didn't remember that. I'm just showing you how to do that. Now, when you're searching for something, see, it's not... The problem is we have so much information, and, and even from this ministry, there's a, a lot of notes and, and data to go over. But if you just get in the, in, 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 for instance, getting the gospel right, if you got into uh, your spiritual life, dead or dynamic, that has, I don't know, 100 and something pages in it, and you want to find something in there, bring it up, go to the edit, hit the binoculars and type the word or phrase. Now the only difference, if you want to put a phrase in it, you can put a phrase, just put them in double quotation marks and it'll look for a phrase instead of just the word. You got that? Now y'all need to be using that because that's how you find things. You won't be calling me. Well, probably will anyway, but it's worth it. You see how that is? Now I'm going to give you quiz next time. Edit. 
See how you find it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in the same thing, even if you're in a, in a uh, if you have Bible software that you have a scriptures in there, it's, it works kind of like a concordance. You can go to the edit and in there type your word and find it in the scriptures and just keep keep going through it like that. Okay. Our, my little computer lesson is done, but let me tell you, if you if you utilize that, you're gonna be fine. I, I showed Carrie how to use this because she's asked me a lot of times, "Where is so and so? What is so and so?" And so we have uh, not only Libronics, but I mean Logos, but we have Bible Works. She's got Bible Works on her computer, and I showed her. It's not the same as Microsoft Word, but it's similar. You go into the Bible works, and there's a little little spot there where you can type a word or a phrase and sit, click go, and it'll find everywhere in the Bible where that is. So if you, if you know a verse, but you don't know where it is, but you only know, if you don't even know one word of it, you can click on it and bring it all right there, and you can go down and find what you want. Y'all need to be using these tools. They're very powerful. Okay. We're talking about the Scriptures uh, being in the first person. No other book does that. Paul referred to the Scriptures as the oracles of God in Romans 3, 2. And he referred to his own words as conveying the Spirit's words in 1 Corinthians 2, 13. For this reason he wrote, quote, The things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. 1 Corinthians 14.37 Paul commanded the, churches, the church leaders to speak with authority and certainty in order to silence the false teachers in Titus chapter 1, verse 9 through 16. And that all came from uh, Bibliotheca Sacra, volume 161. I think that would be a good place to stop. Let's see. No, I think I'll, I'll do this last little part right here and then we'll be done. Because we're about to change. Next time we're going to start because some people get upset because when the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament and it's not the exact wording, some people get bent out of shape. I'll handle that first thing next time. That's what's next, but I want to finish this with this same school of thought on this last paragraph here. And <clears throat> this also came from... Bibliotheca Sacra, Volume 161, which is from Dallas Theological Seminary. This is a, a journal, journal article. Jesus often affirmed the absolute authority of the Scriptures. He used Scriptures to rebuke Satan in fa uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4 through 10. Anybody know what Matthew 4, 4 is? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's a good one to know, Matthew 4, 4. He used the authority of Scripture to rebuke pharisaical traditions. That would be in Matthew 15, 3 through 4. And he appealed to the Scripture as his basis for cleaning the temple, cleansing the temple in Mark eleven seventeen. He said one could build his or her life on the rock of truth in Matthew seven twenty four, and that not even the smallest letter or stroke of the law would pass away until all is fulfilled. In Matthew 17, 5, 17 through 20. In other words, Jesus Christ continually was using Scripture. He is our pattern. He is our 
the one that we follow. And if he used Scripture under the most adverse conditions, even under severe testing directly from Satan, that's what we should use as well. So, this is some of the things that we can do in order to not only substantiate the Word of God to others, but have it take priority even more so in our lives. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it all this time. It's come under so many attacks. And yet it is resilient because the flowers have fade and, and, and everything shall pass away, but your word will not pass away. And so we're so thankful for it. We just pray that you will give us the good sense and the motivation to be in it, to think it, to live it. Because this is the only way that we're going to get to that seventh imputation, surpassing grace blessings which you have for those who love you and who know your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.